This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And today is another one of those days where I have a lot more to say, so thank you for being here. We appreciate it very, very much. Susan, you're giggling already. So uh, we appreciate you on Restream. We're watching over on Rumble as well. And again, uh, we are out on Clubhouse. And if you raise your hand there, I will bring you up to ask questions of my guest or myself. And if you uh, come up to the podium to ask questions, you'll be uh, agreeing to stream out on multiple platforms, including uh, Twitch. I think we're even on, we on Twitter yet again. Uh, Rumble, Facebook, YouTube, you name it, we're out there. We are broadcasting, as it were. Uh, Susan, you good today? Busy. Busy. Okay, good. So you're all ready for this show as well. Um, my guest today, he has, um, I became aware of David McCraney from his podcast, You Are Not So Smart. It's one of my very favorite podcasts. I don't remember how I found it, but I was on it like white on rice immediately uh, and have listened to really every episode since. Do people he, still say that? White on like rice? A pig, a pig and shit. How about that? We'll just say <laughs> yeah. Like a pig on shit. Um, uh, white on rice is your saying, Susan. That's why I thought you might like it. I know, but that's so, an old saying. Yeah, I know, but uh, I thought I'd resurrect it for you. Uh, in any event, uh, he has been essentially, well, he'll tell you what he's been exploring, but it, it is the world of cognitive science, essentially, sort of how our brain works, how our brain changes, how our opinions work, persuasion. I, I come from an area of sort of almost mathematics. And so when persuasion started becoming more of a significant uh, issue in our culture, I got very fascinated with it. And uh, Dave McCraney was one of the people I fell upon. So it's You Are Not So Smart, available at youarenotsosmart.com. He also has a spinoff podcast uh, called Exploring Genius at Himalaya.com. I was not aware of that, but I will get on that immediately. And he's here promoting his upcoming book, How Minds Change, which is out on June 21st. There it is. And uh, full disclosure, I'm about halfway through it, and uh, it's a great book. It's a wonderful window into what David has been thinking about and the people he's been interviewing for the last, frankly, about three years. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. So let's please welcome Dave McCraney. Oh wow, my God! Thank does you so much about, for that introduction. Does that about summarize it? Is it is it's at least three <laughs> to five years of your thinking writing that book, right? You, yeah, I mean, I got started. I think the I, I knew I wanted to write a book about this about five six years ago, but the the hardcore research when I started coming up against things that I really needed some experts to help me with, uh, I started putting some of them on the podcast, letting you see the process of me figuring all this out and getting it ready for a book. So yeah, it's it's many years in the, in the making. 
yeah, I, I recognized some of the material in the book. I'd heard it on the podcast. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when he was talking about that. <laughs> but it's nice that, but in the book, it it has the context of, of a developed, I don't want to say necessarily an argument, but but a, a point of view. Like it's, it's developed, and you're moving the reader towards a deeper understanding. And it was interesting to me, the, the choice that you started with the idea of deep canvassing. Tell me about that choice. Yeah, the, I I knew that's when I knew I wanted it to be a book. I I, I think the the sort of inciting moment of all of this was I had I did a lecture at some point and someone asked me how they could talk to their father about uh, believing in a conspiracy theory about Barack Obama at the time, uh, a, a sort of some, an offshoot of birtherism. And I remember telling that person in the audience, uh, "You can't change their mind," and I felt really bad about it. Uh, I had. I never really fully believed that that was true, and I wondered about my own cynicism. And I, at this around that same time, the United States changed its uh, overall public opinion about same-sex marriage to the point that uh, the laws were changed. And I started seeing more evidence that people can change their minds, and maybe we're just not doing a very good job of it. Maybe the context in which we're having the conversations alter the way we have those conversations. And I came across the work of the LGBT Center of Los Angeles, uh, who were using a technique called deep canvassing. And I read an article about them and I asked them, can I come out there and and do that with you? I think there's a book here. And so I went out to Los Angeles and trained in their technique, went with them door to door for uh, several uh, visits, uh, and then spent lots of time with them in their training and outside their training and talking to them individually. Deep canvassing is a uh, a technique that developed around uh, Prop 8 and then just became A-B tested to the point that it became more and more robust and to the point that scientists went out to see how it worked and why it was working. It's uh, a method in which canvassers go door to door and it can be on any issue. They, they've, ex they've expanded it to many different issues at this point where you go the, to the doors of people who probably based off of polling are uh, opposed to that issue that you want to persuade them about and you knock on their door and you and you go through a series of questions in a particular order using a particular technique and when it works and it has a pretty high success rate you can get someone to flip their opinion on a wedge issue or at least move somewhere along the attitude scale on a wedge issue within 20 minutes and it's very counterintuitive from the way we usually argue with people and it was so impressive that uh, a number of research papers have been written about it, and I was astonished that it that it worked. Not just because it worked, but that the people who created it did it through A/B testing of thousands and thousands of conversations that they had recorded, going more in the direction of what worked, and away from the direction of things that didn't until they honed in on something. And they weren't aware of the science behind what they were doing. They weren't aware that there was a science behind what they were doing. But when I took what they were doing to experts and people who work in therapeutic uh, frameworks, there were a lot of things from the literature they were pulling out and showing me, things that I'm sure you're very aware of, of like motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy and um, even things like the Socratic method. There were all sorts of elements of this. And when I started telling people about this, other people in other communities around the world who were also getting success using similar techniques but were not aware of deep canvassing reached out to me. I ended up visiting all of those people and I discovered there was this sort of new wave of reaching out and having conversations with people who disagree with you on these difficult topics. And these communities were doing things that were very similar to one another, but they weren't aware of each other. And it started to look to me something like when they were trying to invent the airplane and wherever they were getting success in that, the airplanes all look the same because physics is the same, wherever you try to make an airplane on the planet, 
persuasion techniques that work tend to look similar because brains tend to work in a very similar way when you engage with them in these processes. Well, me, I'm so gonna interrupt. That's how it starts. I'm gonna interrupt. And, and the, one of the reasons yeah. it jumped out at me, one of the reasons it jumped out at me is when you're dealing, you know, I deal with many, many thousands of addicts and alcoholics who are very rigid and unable to adjust their, they're in what we commonly call denial, which is close to de delusional inability to see what's happening to them. It's, it's very, very close to being biological, but they're in a very rigid state of thinking, of disturbed thinking, problematic thinking that keeps them in their illness of addiction. And mm. it all sounded very familiar to me in terms of the techniques I use to get people into the process of recovery, which is essentially, I mean, it's funny, we were talking about this yesterday on this on this very program, probably because I just was reading your book. And, and full disclosure, I've not completed it yet, but I can't wait to finish it. For, <laughs> for you, I encourage all of you, it reads fast, it's great. But but it was, it, it it's, there are so many different fields, including psychoanalysis, that use this same phenomenon of relational, motivational change. And, and really it's sort of, holding people in a it's really to me and you tell me if it sort of became anything like this for you as you continue to discuss this with all the different sources it becomes just holding people in a trusted frame is being mm -hmm. getting them into this frame of trust uh mm -hmm. and not not trust in what i'm saying but just trust in the closeness of another human being that they mm -hmm. can be that it can be okay that you won't abuse you won't manipulate you won't, you'll just be there uh, and that is a very, and, and it's difficult for people to do that. You have to have very clear boundaries about what's going on in your own body brain, so to speak. Um, yeah. But done properly, it's very effective. It's incredibly effective. Uh, the I've had, uh, in the book, I don't just go through the the models. I also try to talk to people who are in other academic silos, like from anthropology to sociology to cognitive neuroscience, to try to understand like what's going on here. Um, I think the best, the reason that trust thing is so important, uh, I guess the easiest way to like, to describe it quickly is, um, the work of Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber was, was vital to all of this. They're cognitive neuroscientists who, uh, study argumentation and deliberation and debate, and they go all the way down to neurons and, and go through a, like an evolutionary framework and all the other things. And they do their own research into this. And they've developed this great model called the interactionist model in which, uh, they posit there are two systems by which we produce arguments for the sake of talking to each other and go creating goals and plans and working out what is and isn't so and trying to understand things that are uncertain or ambiguous. And one is for producing arguments and reasons and justifications, and one is for evaluating them. And the way they had I've had it described to me is you can imagine three people, proto-humans on a hill, three people looking in three different directions, and you hear something weird in the, in the or you see a, a, the bushes shake or something, and not each person is getting a different slice of the entire worldview and you need to depend on the trust of the other people around you and sort of an understanding of how they see the world, things they've experienced so that you can vet what they're going to contribute to the argumentation pool in that moment so that you can collectively kind of come to an agreement. And none of that can even start without there being this trust, this non-judgmental, right. com compassionate listening to one another and allowing those arguments to pool into this, this space between you. And these persuasion techniques that uh, work, they some of them accidentally and some of them on purpose discovered that you have to open with that rapport building stage. It's yeah. uh, in therapeutic yeah. models, like you're, you're aware, and if therapeutic models that like, uh, they call it like going from pre-contemplation to contemplation, like you have to establish like, okay, we're both 
good here. Like I'm not here to to threaten your agency. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to, to threaten you in a, in a way that you might be ostracized by your community. I'm truly interested in your reasoning process so that we can together figure out if we do disagree, why do we disagree? Which is a much different framing than saying, I'm right, you're wrong, let's debate until one of us wins. It's very different. And you can, if you enter that framework, you can then flow through a sort of a flow chart of argumentation that is much more likely to get a person to adjust their sense of certainty or their attitude or even their value structure. And it's very successful when done well. I would argue it's not even argumentation they're pulling them through. They're just pulling them through uh, just a, a series of uh, reflective function. Like mm -hmm. this is all so basic in human psychology and treatment and stuff. And, and again, we part of the reason it's kind of interesting to me is, is that we live in a country that has you know been rife with childhood trauma. So just the ability to enter a frame with another person is a very threatening environment. So you mm -hmm. have to be extremely skilled at getting somebody in there. And once they're in, they're they're not comfortable, uh, and you have to be very respectful of of what they're experiencing, their experience, including their thoughts. And what this really is doing is just just reflecting their thoughts. It's called reflective function. Mm -hmm. Peter Fonagut. Yeah. It's all in the psychoanalytic literature. It's all there already. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it's, just tra it's trapped. You know, it's trapped. It? <laughs> yeah, it's all that process of just going. I hear you saying fill in the blank, or I'm wondering what you mean when you say fill in the blank and getting the person to reflect with this interactive component upon their thinking. It's get putting, literally, literally putting them outside of themselves and seeing themselves and their thoughts through a new pair of glasses, which yeah. is, this is the magic of humanity. We have, we've not emphasized this enough in terms of how human social connectedness, how, why things are better because we, you know, why we survive as a human population is because of these mechanisms. This is literally the yes. foundation of our success as a species. And, and we, the, the closer we get to delusionality, meaning rigid, un, unyielding thinking that, that can't be adjusted, uh, the the more it is in the world of psychopathology and and trauma and probably you know maybe really truly thought disorders, I, I'm shocked how many people are sort of drifted in that direction in recent years, but it's frustrating to me because I don't deal well with that population. I don't deal. I've never done well with schizophrenics because they don't respond to what we're talking about. They don't respond to it at all. Well, not at all. A little bit over time with certain kinds of cognitive behavioral therapy, but because their delusions are so biological. They don't respond, and I find it so frustrating. <laughs> I find it so frustrating. And and so when non-pathological humans, non-sick humans, start engaging, in my mind, to similar conspiratorial thinking and sort of rigid thinking about uh, the universe, I, I withdraw. I get, I get very... Um, Oh, yeah. anxious about it and frustrated. I mean, to me, to me, and, and I know you did a lot of work on this, so let's, let's bring it to the fore here. To me, the the group that is the the sort of the model of this for my frustration is the flat Earth group. I always think about <laughs> God. How would I deal? Yeah. How would I deal with that group? How would I interact with them? And how could I keep that that verisimilitude going and be trusting and open and give, give them a you know a safe environment when they're saying these things and and then and then squirt through. You know, I think you did a pod on this where they squirt every time you could show them, they would agree that if you could show me this gyroscope goes off by four degrees, I will agree the world is round. Then you show them, well, it's off by four degrees. They go, well, the gyroscope must be broken, which is exactly yeah. how delusional thinking works. It's just, there's it's always a, a reason and excuse for everything. So go ahead, you talk about it. 
No, it's, it's, I like talking about the flat earth thing because uh, what is true there and what works there is also what's true and what works in all the other conspiratorial frameworks that a lot of us are probably have family members who are dealing with this right now. And we have probably have difficult conversations across the board, often on social media and so on. And it's entered politics because it's a, it turns out you can use conspiratorial uh, communities to uh, shore up your base if you if you want to go that way in politics. And so that's now part of our lives as well. Not that it hasn't always been, but it's particularly something of our current era. Um, when it, you One of the things you're mentioning there is trying to do that sort of uh, fact check whack-a-mole thing, and it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I talk about this a lot about in the book, this, uh, this frustration we have about trying to persuade people with facts alone, the information deficit hypothesis, as they call it. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. If you just give people enough facts, if you just show them the facts that persuade you, the facts that seem true to you, and you just send them enough links and show them enough YouTube videos, that should be enough, right? And then you get frustrated when it's not. And of course, they might also be doing the same thing. They're dumping facts on you and you just have this battle of, right. of hyperlinks and YouTube videos. And the reason it doesn't work, there's a million reasons why it doesn't work, but it, the is because you're you're starting at the end of a processing chain. You're starting at the conclusions and you're trying to work your way from the conclusions back and it, and it doesn't work because there's a reason why you find those things convincing. There's a reason why your certainty goes up or down when you look at some things and it, their reasoning process works differently than yours because of all the priors they're bringing to it, all the experiences they're bringing to it all the uh, motivations they're bringing to it. The, in, when it comes to flat earth, what the motivation, and all these persuasion techniques work this way. We're trying to get to the person's motivations f for uh, why they're reasoning in a particular way. And reasoning in a psychological sense would be just coming up with reasons for why you think, feel, and believe that are reasonable to your trusted peers, that they would consider like that's a reasonable explanation. That, but you are in a different trust community and so you don't find it reasonable and it starts this battle the motivation often there like it feels like they might defend their belief or their attitude with this fact or this thing they've seen or this particular aspect of of uh, a flat earth model but what's what's the root of all of that usually is a, a deep distrust of institutions a deep distrust of government a deep distrust of the military industrial complex the, the, as they framed it and then sometimes looping in things like nasa or the united states military is all being part of some sort of cabal that which comes together as a collective them you know the the, the a threatening them that is trying to pull the wool over your eyes and that is in conspiracy in conspiracy theory research they call that a motivational allure uh there's the, the allure is usually in the direction of do you want to establish a new identity or do you want to shore up the identity you already have but once you find your way into a collective uh that has that shares your anxieties you start switching over into the tribal signaling motivations and now you have two motivations working at the same time that are difficult to parse the the way um one of the ways you can look at this is like uh, the if you have, let's say you're in the uh, let's say you're in a tent in the woods and uh, you hear a weird sound and you think you get really scared viscerally you have a bodily you have an emotion in your body you have fear it's a negative affect and you want to check to see if that's a reasonable thing to feel and there's a mechanism that's at play here because you're thinking about uh, presenting this argument to your peers as hey I think there might be something wrong here and I'm looking for a justification for the the feeling I'm having. And I want to justify that the anxiety I feel is reasonable. And you go looking for evidence with maybe a flashlight for that 
to, to see if whether or not the sound you hear is a bear because you think it might be a bear and you're scared. And this is then you, that's when you put on the, the confirmation bias goggles because you're looking for confirmation that your fears are justified. This right, is so that's what's the first cognitive bias. That's a common first either reasoning from conclusion or confirmation bias. Those are right. Those are writ large in these in this kind of thinking. Right. So you can imagine you can we can talk about you can think of any conspiracy theory community that exists. This is usually the first step in the process of your onboarding. You're going but with flat earth, let's say you, you have this anxiety about um, the some sort of government entity that seems to be taking away your agency or threatening your agency. You got some sort of uh, sneaky suspicion. There may be other conspiracies that you've already looked at that, that give you a little bit of anxiety already, whether it's like JFK or moon landing or something like that. And so you go looking for confirmation that your anxiety is justified. And when you go online to do that, uh, it's very easy to find that confirmation. There's always someone out there who's providing some sort of evidence that, that, that seems to justify the way you're feeling. And what we have, what's really, this is something we've always done. We've always had the ability to do going back to, you know, libraries and scrolls and VHS tapes. But what's new now is how quickly we can form a community around a shared anxiety. And the internet offers that, mm. that, that we can form a community very quickly. In the book, I talk about the dress as a way to sort of keep this apolitical, but you can see where you go online and you look for other people who share these anxieties, you find them, you see their arguments, they seem reasonable to you, and you move into that community. And now you're more, you're, although your, your original motivations were on, on this sort of processing chain, once you're in a community and you start uh, trading back and forth, uh, messages with them and you start rising in that community and your status starts going up and you start signaling that you're a good member for all these different reasons and holding all these beliefs, then you get locked into the all the motivations humans carry as ultra social primates to stay good members of a community that you now identify with it. And that's when it becomes really difficult to pull somebody out. But all these persuasion right. techniques are the way the reason they work is because I'm going toward that and I'm hoping through our conversation that you recognize the source of your reasoning process and i'm getting you there through a sort of guided metacognition instead of me saying all this straight to you because i'm sure you're aware like when they when they attempted with before the covid anti-vaccine stuff when it was just mmr anti-vaccine stuff it was always uh the the, the cdc tried all these techniques with uh, fact-based mm -hmm. approaches and they they weren't they didn't mm -hmm. do a great job in fact they would oftentimes you'd show somebody all this information and they would be even more even le or even less likely to vaccinate or more against vaccinating. Well, well I, I learned I learned from you, from the, the guys you talked to on your podcast, and there was a little controversy about the doubling down effect, I understand. But the, mm. the best reading of the literature I got was you could convince somebody that, say, the measles vaccines is safe and effective and important, but if you convince them of such, they were likely to double down more on the rest of vaccine therapies. Yeah, They'll go and take the measles being, vaccine right. and then close out everything else. What's right. that? Because you're because what you're doing is you're effectively changing their belief in a fact, but you're not affecting the attitude yeah. that drove them to look for a fact to justify the way they feel. And that's a really right. common thing when we try to change people's minds. We often think we're trying to change their beliefs, but we're really trying to change their attitudes, or at least we're trying to um, we're trying to respect their attitudes and give them an opportunity to still have a reasonable fear or anxiety of something, but take that and process it using an epistemological framework that's more likely to find fact-based things to uh to sort of assuage that anxiety that's that's why the, that's why that almost never works and, it, and the double down that, 
the, the backfire effect, I think the, the mistake a lot of people made was thinking that it was a backfire of belief or certainty in a, in a fact, but it was really about the, the attitude had never been addressed. And that's what we often call the backfire yeah. effect. Yeah. And, and uh, I, you know, when I think about, uh, con- you know, contemplate trying to talk to a flat earther, I, I started, I sort of, I always think I fantasize that I would have to say something like, well, I understand that with your worldview that you would feel this way, but you've already made a mistake. You appreciate how already tell me, tell me. So with your worldview, it sounds like I'm a, I've immediately put you in a, in a them frame and me in an us frame. And I'm saying like, I okay. ain't like you, I'm not you. So, uh, okay. So, so I understand ahead. your worldview, something like that. Would it be okay to say, mm-hmm. I understand your worldview, but I'm having a problem here, which is that with that worldview, my understanding of t- trigonometry and calculus would cease to function. There suddenly those, those things that I know to be true, which are mathematical would, would somehow fly into, you know, they just suddenly wouldn't, I couldn't trust them or something. It help you, help me with that. <laughs> That's sort of where I would go. And I don't think it would get very far. I don't think I would get very far. It would not, it would not, because there's always a yeah. way to say, no, I'm not debating. The other side would say something. I'm not debating trigonometry or math here. I'm saying that you can use the same trigonometry and math and come to a different conclusion. And right, so, because right, right, right. the, your opening volley should be with someone in, in a conspiratorial framework, uh, you want to ask, first of all, you need to build strong rapport. And that may, that may take more than one yeah. conversation. You may not be able to enter into persuasion yeah. until you've established that rapport. But once you've yeah. done that, you have to, you, can, you cannot communicate, communicate anything that is, you should be ashamed for what you think, feel, or believe. No, no, comes, no, no. Yeah. If that comes across and it may not be yeah. your intention, it may just be a mistake you make, yeah. but if that comes across, if it's interpreted that way, then you're kind of out of the loop. But yeah, your opening volley should Force just be asked up. for That's right. That's right. Uh, for, yeah. But he, yeah. Your opening volley should just be ask for a very specific claim within the whole thing. If you're going for fact-based stuff, if you're going for attitudes, we can all, we can uh, tweak it a little bit. But ask for a very specific claim, and then ask them to uh, to articulate it, and then try to repeat it back so that you really demonstrate you're listening. And you're only asking questions. You're not offering anything from your side of the of the reasoning process. Ask for their definitions because you want to make sure they use their definitions and not yours. Don't redefine it in your own words. And then the crucial element in all of these techniques is ask for, and this is something from motivational interviewing, street epistemology, uh, deep canvassing, uh, smart politics, uh, the, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Every model uses this next thing for different reasons and with different uh, uh, benefits. But you ask for a measurement of their confidence. Um, or you ask for a measurement of their attitude. It can be one to 10, one to 100 or something. But you want to say like, if, you know, on a scale from one to 10, where do you put yourself as, as your confidence in this claim? Or uh, if it's an attitude-based thing where you're like, this is good or bad, like how strongly is that in the direction of good or bad? And once you have that number, you can then start to enter into metacognition with the other party because you can say something to the effect of, uh, if it's if it's a one or, or a 10, you know, they're, they're still in pre-contemplation because it's that they're like, they're, they're still in black and white thinking. But to not belabor it and get into what we could do there. Let's assume they were, they do a number somewhere between you can ask, uh, you know, why not lower or why not higher? And that starts a different kind of conversation because you want them to feel this maybe for the first time that there is a level of certainty and it's a, it's not at a hundred percent or 1%, but there must be a reason for that. And then when you get that, start that conversation, you can actually ask things like, what what reasons do you have to hold that level of confidence at that point? And then once you're in that conversation, you can start asking 
well, what do you feel justifies that? What, what methods are you using to determine that that's a good reason for feeling that way? And just having that conversation without there being any more like, um, without there being any more bullet points in here, just having that sort of conversation usually moves people a little bit. And just, just having that kind of conversation, just giving somebody sort of space to have that sort of introspective, contemplative, metacognitive uh, sort of exploration of their own process often gets people thinking completely differently. And it's not like having a debate. It's not like having a, uh, a fact battle. It's, it's, it's an attempt for, for you and the other person to explore sort of solving a mystery of like, why would, why would both of us have the same evidence in front of us, but have different conclusions because of it? And this is sort of the, this is, this goes back to what we evolved to do when we have these kind of conversations. And that's the, that's the nut of, that's the root, that's sort of the foundation of how these things work. In, in the treatment world, we call, or at least some of this is called therapeutic wonderment. Therapeutic wonderment. Oh, I'm wondering, that's like, how is this? That's a, how could it be? That's a great term. Yeah, I'm wondering why you're not, yeah, therapeutic Taking wonderment. I wonder why it's not 100%. Yes, please do. It's a great, it's a great technique because even if people know you're using it, they can't, they, they succumb to it. And and they will just you just go. I, I'm wondering why it's not 100 percent. Why you're not 100 percent confident? Or I'm wondering why it's you know. And it's just lots of wonder, wonder, wonder. That that word wonder is. Uh, I'm wondering, or I've I've thought. I'm I just all that kind of. Hmm. It's like being an attorney leading the witness. And yet you know the answers to all things they're looking yeah. for. And uh, but but again, you're asking them. To, and in in the therapeutic setting, you're looking for emotional insight or self insight or behavioral insights, not cognitive insights so much. Although there's certainly cognitive insights can be useful as well. So it's just interesting to me that these these worlds overlap. Caleb, I'm, I'm wondering, I would think this would be interesting to you. Do you have any questions about this? Caleb is oh, our producer. yes, yes, I actually do. Um, <laughs> I figured you did. Please, I figured I have you did. Lots of questions here. The, uh, well, let me get my, myself up here on camera. And before you ask the, the question, uh, I want to point out that in the book, like the book is really on the ground because we go to, I go to Westboro Baptist Church. I go, to, I speak, I yeah. spend time yeah. at 911 Truthers and and uh, people in conspiratorial communities. So the then the reason for that is when I started out the book, I did not know what questions to ask. And I just figured it would be best to jump yeah. into places where people were either locked in or people who had recently left and then bring that to experts and say, why is this person locked in? Why did this person leave? And that's how it unfolds in the text. But yeah, let me hear some questions. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, I, so I am, I'm not an anti-church person at all. I've, I've had lots of positive experiences. I grew up in a very, very super traditional Catholic childhood. And then I actually loved my, I spent three years as a very devout Mormon at a time in my early twenties and all those, they were all mostly good people. But then as I've, you know, the next Siri, uh oh, they're Whoops. spying on me. <laughs> as I, I, you know, I got some Siri's listening. That. She's like, oh, they're they're pointing me out now. I something that I've noticed is that I've seen a massive increase of people who are falling down rabbit holes, and it's kind of made me wonder with my experiences of like growing up in a, such a religious household and all of my other experiences that if teaching such large masses of people from birth into adulthood to accept things that are based on faith if it leaves them more vulnerable to believing other that are entirely non-religious things and then not requiring evidence because that's almost mm. like what their brains have been programmed to do. So is there any yeah. pattern that you've I, I seen in your you, studies I, I, of like, I, I, have you seen I have any definitely pattern? seen Caleb, Caleb, I've definitely seen a pattern of n n never having been exposed to or really <laughs> understanding how to make your brain engage in rigorous 
analytical thought. There's, there's, right. there's, there's a, is a deficit generally in this country, but that's not enough. I'm sure David will tell you, but go ahead. Right. Yeah, I could, believe me, I could commiserate. I grew up uh, in a Southern Baptist household uh, and in community and in the Deep South. And I, I remember when I went to Westboro Baptist Church, one of the things that in the, that I say in the book is that the thing that was most unsettling was that it was uh, familiar. That was the thing. I didn't. I was like, oh, this is just like every other Baptist church I've been to. They just have a really good um, gimmick that they're using. And uh, the people who were locked into it didn't seem different from people who were locked into those faiths that I grew up in. And also the way people got out of those faiths didn't seem different from the way that uh, people I know got out of it as well. Um, what's similar here, What the, to address your question directly, is that um, everything we do cognitively is motivated. We're, we're motivated thinkers. It's not. We often use the word the term motivated reasoning, but that's just one of mm -hmm. the motivation we're motivated everything we do is motivated by something and mm -hmm. we don't we often as a in the west we're very individualistic and we're very we like the idea of rugged individualism even more so in the united states uh and there's that we don't like the idea that what we're doing is motivated especially not socially motivated but it is it's right. just how we are we're social primates and the you can you know if you want a piece of chocolate cake you can find a reason to get the chocolate cake right you can say well i i, I did push-ups today or or uh, I, i've been keeping to my diet or tomorrow I'll work out. There's what you want is the cake and you'll find a reason to do it. Right. The, in a conspiratorial community, in any community at all, of any kind, the, there's a culture that forms that has all these badges of loyalty and uh, marks of shame that have come out where you can signal that you're a good or bad member of the group for different reasons. And that's all very useful. That's how we escaped. Uh, that's how we are able to talk over the internet the way we're doing right now, because we're really good at group-based reasoning. And that requires having a, a format that we can rise up and down through status using all these signals. The, in an, what I have seen many times in those, in any community, whether it's a deeply religious or conspiratorial community is oftentimes the culture has its own values and its own norms. And then the, the text that they use uh as sort of the the binding thing is the authoritative voice you just cherry pick through the text for things that justify that your norms and your uh your uh values are good norms of values they're just they're reasonable and with a conspiratorial community they will usually form some sort of authoritative thing that you will use to do that and that is a we had to invent the scientific method to stop doing that so much when it comes down to it like start with a hypothesis and then have a bunch of different hypotheses that compete against each other and the ones that have the most evidence that have been that you've tried to disprove and they've survived disproving the hypotheses you, you go in that direction to try to figure out what is and is not so about the world uh even with yeah. moral and ethical issues it's the same idea like we'll try a bunch of different things and the ones that seem to be causing the least harm we'll go with those uh, if you if you grow up in a community where you, in the other way of going about things is seems to be the way to think, which is you start with the way you feel, you start with the norms that are in place, you start with the uh, value propositions that give you social capital and avoid social sanction, and then you go to an authority to whatever is the authority in that community, and you cherry pick it for bits and pieces that justify and support that this is the actual proper way of doing things. You get into that frame and you, you get really used to it. You can definitely apply that to other issues for the rest of your life, and there can be a, it's an onboarding process into a certain conspiratorial frameworks. Yeah, well, I, to, I, to, I agree. I think it's it's right, it's interesting to me. It's very interesting to me how I was able, you know, looking back in my history, how I was able to go from you know twenty something years growing up in a very very traditional Catholic household 
to going to college and then pretty much seeing a completely different world, wiping that slate clean, and then spending three or four years being a part of the Latter-day Saints church. I was so, it was easy for me to go from Catholicism to believing almost nothing than to believing that I was going to get married and have multiple wives and planets and all of these interesting things because I was just like, well, I, I love the people that are here. I love the fact that I, I just moved to California and I have what felt like a new family. And I was like, well, if I'm going to believe something why not believe that when I die, I'm going to get a planet? Like, why mm. not? Why could, if, if nothing was too crazy what I, from what I was growing up, even mm. though I was, I was, I, in, in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, this could just, I don't know. I don't see any evidence of this, but if I accepted but, it for 20 Caleb, years, why can't I accept something else? Caleb, you, you, you could see how a, a conversation though, where, Caleb, where say David applied some of these techniques would get you outside of it right. pretty quickly. To be able to start mm -hmm. to look at it, one of the things I'm, and, and I'm reminded of something else too: assimilation and accommodation. We, we can get into it later, but I was reminded of assimilation and accommodation. Forgive me for jumping in there, but it's, I just those yeah. two terms excite me to no Go. end. Uh, it goes back to the to Piaget, and it's it, I, the reason the book's called "How Minds Change" and not "How to Change Minds" is because I really wanted the reader to understand how this actually happens at, in, inside the brain, and then you can apply your understanding using techniques. The one of the fundamental things to understand about how a mind changes, how the thing that brains, uh, that emerges from the you know neural network of the brain, uh, we, that we call a mind, the way it changes is through broadly speaking, assimilation and accommodation. And assimilation is, is taking novel and ambiguous information and making it, uh, uh, disambiguating it using what your prior understanding of the world so that it fits right in there. And accommodation is, is, is expanding the way you understand the world to accommodate information that doesn't seem to be, you can't seem to disambiguate it without adding something to it. The easiest way to describe that would be like when a child sees a dog for the first time and it, they, they say, what is that? And you say, that's a dog in their mind. There's some sort of categorical thing that takes place where you're, they're thinking, um, this is a furry non-human, uh, walks on four legs, has a tail dog. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> later on, they see, later on, they see a, a no, also they see a horse and, um, they point at it and say dog, and you say, no, 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 that's not a dog. That's a horse. Uh, th the attempt to call it a dog is assimilation because it's, it's non-human furry, four legs, tail, and you try to fit it into your existing category and that's assimilation. But when you say, no, that's a horse, they have to accommodate. And that's, that's literally expanding your mind because you have to create yeah. a new category in which both things fit. So animals can now be dogs or horses. And that requires a whole new level of abstraction. When you were talking about, uh, easily going into a different church, the that's similar to, you know, that's assimilation. You already had all these frameworks set. All you had to do was plug it into them. You didn't have to do anything mm -hmm. broadly accommodate. You didn't have to broadly accommodate to make that fit in. And it reminds me of right. that. Right, right. And it was difficult. I could never find anything. I couldn't, I couldn't get myself to say, well, the, all of these people believing this stuff that doesn't make 100% of sense and kind of a concrete evidence-based world, they're not harming anybody at all. There's no right. harm of them believing this stuff until you cross over into the point whenever you start believing conspiracy theories until like that, the framework that's set up that is positive gets exploited by grifters who are, you know, selling conspiracy products right. and things and, like and that. And that, that's sort of what's disturbing me these days is that there is a, there is a, you know, a, a, 
aspect to this phenomenon that exists in almost every community. I think about medicine, for instance, the way we treat, the way mm -hmm. we train doctors is extremely indoctrinary. And it's a, and you, you're either all in or all out and you're having to believe all these things that the authorities are telling you. And you, you, you know, they, for the most part, they they have an obligation to give you an evidence basis for it. But there is a lot of, you know, similar stuff in many, many communities. And the fact that it's leading into politics to this degree today where you're either you know you're in a, a group a tribe and signaling I, that that is new stuff to me that it's always operating well it seems to be always operating i don't know if that's social media or the media generally or just the the winds that are blowing in the present time politically but how people are so prone to being so rigid and so unable to step outside of themselves and kind of look at things that's really very disturbing. Are you, are you concerned? Mm -hmm. That's what got me interested in your podcast, frankly. Are you, are you worried yeah. about that? I think about it. It's, it's, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, but oddly, I feel like I've taken a sort of punk attitude here where like I'm extremely optimistic. Um, I, I feel like this happens in every technological revolution that causes a disruption to the like epistemological framework of how we trade information oh. back and forth. Um, and we usually, we always get through it. I mean, not without a lot of problems and not, the, not without a lot of suffering oftentimes. So I'm not saying that it's not going to be really bad in a lot of places and, and it sucks in so many different ways, but uh, I am optimistic that we'll figure it out. But to figure it out, we have to create, we have to develop a new literacy for these things. We have to, uh, um, Tom Stafford the, recently uh, told me that uh, he thinks of it more like um, germs. You know, he thinks of it like uh, germs were mm -hmm. always a problem, uh, but it wasn't until we had mm -hmm. cities that we had to worry about sanitation and, and teach people to wash their hands and that sort of thing. And misinformation, mm -hmm. disinformation has always been a problem, always. Trust has always been difficult to establish, easy to lose, and there have always been grifters. But it wasn't until we had the massive information environment we have now, which is similar to cities, uh, social media platforms, and the ability for each one of us to join in on conversations, which is something we've never had before, uh, we'd have to develop the informational equivalent of sanitation and, and learning how to wash your hands. And I think that's that's a phase we have to go through. And unfortunately, many of us are going to have to get to live through sort of a, a four-generation spread of, of going through that phase together. But I do think that we're doing the work. And there's many organizations working on it. And there are many scientists working on it. And there are many programs like this where we are talking about it. So we have to, we'll have to figure it out. But I think we will. That that is that in the book? I don't I don't because I love that idea. Of, it's I've in always there. Been trying it's in to there. Place the present. Okay, good. I, I can't wait to get to because I've always been trying to place the present moment in historical sweep, and it does feel like the Gutenberg Bible or something like that has uh, arrived, and and we're struggling with it. So it's it is. I I am persuaded by your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. The the books the book uh goes in sort of three stages like it starts out with how do minds come make sense of anything and how does that change through just experience and learning and everything and then we go into persuasion and conspiratorial thinking and that's sort of a, like minds working together one-on-one -on -one and in groups and in small groups and then it, it, toward the end of the book i get into social change and how that takes place and all the elements that go into it yeah oh i can't wait i can't wait i'm i'm i'm, I'm digging in uh i i'm gonna take a little break here right now uh but when we get back i want to talk about the wisdom of crowds versus the madness of crowds and any Great. theories you have about that do you know who rob henderson is the the uh social social psychologist he's a phd student in oxford he's very active in social media you, you would you would like him you ought to follow I, him on Twitter. Uh, he's. I think I do follow him on Twitter, uh, but I'm not familiar with exactly what he's done and what his work is there. Off the top well, of he head. he he was a he was a kid in trouble, 
broken homes, adoptions, all kinds of crazy stuff. He's writing a book about it right now. I've read it. It's phenomenal. And uh, ended up getting in the military and then got in a military program that got him into Yale and then went from Yale to, to Oxford and is now a PhD candidate in social psychology and has wonderful insights. Very good thinker. Uh, comes from, you know, because of his experience, he's, he's thinking th things from a different perspective than many of his academic peers. But it's just really, really great stuff. He's into so everybody. Rob Henderson. He's been on this show many times. You guys have seen him here. But but we'll talk about, he, he said something to me about wisdom of crowd versus madness of crowds that was in the literature. And it, it was kind of interesting to me. But uh, before we do, we're going to take a minute and talk about our friends at Genucel who make it possible for us to do this show. Again, the three of us, Susan, Caleb, me, we're all very big fans. So uh, here we go. Hear from that. Don't know where to start on your skincare journey either. We all have that something we'd like to take care of. For me, it's the under-eye bags and puffiness when I don't get enough sleep and the dryness here. Thankfully, I discovered Genucel. I started with their serum for under-eye puffiness and then found their Genucel XV moisturizer, which dramatically changed my face's texture. After only a few uses, for Susan, she hates the annoying area under her nose during allergy season. She tried everything, but no matter what, her skin is dry and flaky and nothing seemed to help till she found Genucel's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer, soaked right in, she was hooked after one use, and now loves all of their other products. Genucel uses a proprietary base formulated by a pharmacist and clinical levels of botanical extracts for the best skincare money can buy. Genucel products are cruelty-free, natural, and made in the USA. I cannot think of a better set of products to take care of my skin. Plus, they guarantee happiness with all of their products, See results you love guaranteed or your money back. Try Genucel's most popular package today and use code DREW for 10% off your entire order. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com and code DREW for 10% off. And just to put a little code on that, uh, for uh, Caleb and I, it's the Chamonix Redness Repair for my daughter. It's the Eyelash Enhancing Serum. For Susan, what is it for you? I see you leaning the in. The cream for, for my... Uh allergic nose oh right peelies i like the i also love the um vitamin c oil mm. serum and then underneath the product it's awesome okay so there you go please support them support us we are back with dave mccraney uh you can find him on you are not so smart you are not so smart.com also exploring genius at himalaya.com the book is how minds change available in just a couple weeks please pre-order now it'll come right to your doorstep of course or during Amazon or wherever you get your books. Uh, I'm watching your guys' commentary on uh, Rumble, for instance. Susan, I know you're jumping in there. Anything going on over there? Uh, Seems like there's a lot of vaccine questions. Maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and then over on Restream, you guys are behaving yourselves. So I don't see anything quite active going on there, any specific questions, so I'm watching you guys. But, David, let's talk about this wisdom of crowds, madness of crowds thing. Um, I, I, I think most people are aware that uh, large numbers of people are better able to arrive at a good decision than an individual decision maker. Would that be about the way to say that? Or is it get, or is it actually arrive at the truth or something approximating the truth? We're very good at consensus, yes. Uh, that's how we yeah, escape. But with, yeah, but with consensus, yeah, oh, we get a better, a better decision, so to speak. Over time, yeah. I mean, uh, there are all sorts of things that can make it better or worse, depending on uh, what we're trying to figure out. And there are large... Uh, pockets of our history in which we got things wrong for long periods of time. But uh, yeah, you put a group of people together and we natural selection created within us the ability to deliberate in a way that we will eventually arrive at better answers and better solutions to things than if we worked individually. And I know it's 
one of those things that doesn't feel true to a lot of people, uh, but it, it, the evidence does bear this out and the research bears it out as well. Except when we go crazy. Except when madness, <laughs> when, except, except when madness comes up, and and Rob told me he goes, I go, I go, what is that? Why is it? You know, what, what's the difference? He goes, you know, there's some literature that shows that if you are casting your vote, your decision, so to speak, in in private, the group tends to get to the right place. But it's when when you're in a social context, that's when you get whipped in by the social winds, and you can get sort of caught up and go crazy. Uh, which was yeah, an interesting it, it, observation. Yeah, I understand that. It's it's, it's all about motivation again, right? Like the uh, if you uh, prime a group of people to pursue accuracy goals, uh, it tends to work pretty well. Uh, if you ask people to work together to determine what is and isn't so about something, the fact based you know approach, people do pretty well. But uh, oftentimes people are not motivated by that. They're motivated by something completely different. Either they're motivated by the fact that they want to be good members of their group. Or they are motivated by they want to demonstrate that they're better members of the group than their peers, and that puts you on the uh, track to a radicalized opinion or to an extreme position. Um, the, uh, the law, of, you know, of of um, of, of uh, group dynamics, like you, it's strangely algorithmic. Like the you compare yourself when people start putting forth what their opinions are on something. If you're trying to talk about you're talking about attitudes, you know, how strongly they feel about something. If you feel internally that you are in the middle and you want to stay in the middle you're a centrist of some kind and you realize after a bunch of people produce their uh internal thoughts on something they 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 tell you how they feel about it and you start feeling like oh wow like there's a lot of people in this group that are more cent centrist than i am and there are a lot of people on this side and on this side you'll move to try to get back to the middle position and for some topics moving to the middle position means moving more toward the extreme uh, than where you thought mm. you were. And then, and as soon as you do mm. that, the people around you who felt like they were somewhere on the scale will have to move in relation to where you've moved. And it starts a cascading process mm. where the whole group becomes more extreme in its opinion over time. And that can definitely happen. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's one of the, you know, I, for years was saying that not enough is made of human motivation. I'm so glad to see that you're, you know, people are looking, thinking, and talking about motive, the underpinning of motivation. It's one of the reasons I loved working with addicts and alcoholics, aside from many reasons, but one of the really interesting aspects of it is you're looking at people's whose brains have broken pathological motivation. All usual motivational phenomenon completely are wiped aside by one motivation, which is use. Use that drug, use, 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 use. So survival, family, work, whatever other motivation, feeling bad, whatever other motivation it is, even feeling good. They're not, it's the feeling good gets superseded by use. And it's mm -hmm. incredible to watch all the other systems serving that broken motivation, that false mm -hmm. god, so to speak. It's amazing how thinking becomes so distorted and screwed up and emotional states become completely disorganized. It it really is a what quite an insight. You, I think you'd be interested in it, given the, you know what you're talking. Yo, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me everything yeah. you have. I, I, I'm really obsessed with this <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a in a different yeah. way. You know, like I think that for a long time I was the proselytizer of uh, we're flawed and irrational, and I don't I don't believe that anymore. My mind changed in writing a book about how minds change, which is I see us as biased and lazy reasoners who contribute. Uh, the easiest argument we can come up with to a pool, and we expect to offload the labor to the group. That that's 
not flawed or irrational, that it works exactly how it ought to work. And it's a very rational way to go about making sense of the world. But we, you put it into a different context or you throw a, a, a new kind of motivation on top of it and you can get some really strange outcomes, which we're all witnessing and living through right now. Um, we, and you're talking about motivation. Give, an, exa like the, give the, an example. Give, give an example of what you're talking about. Give, what, what are you thinking of? When well, you I mean, that? I mean, uh, uh, the easiest example I can pull out is, is how very quickly people became anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers in a situation where we were trying to save the lives of millions of people. And, um, it was, it was for some people who've been studying this and writing about it and talking about it, there was like, oh yeah, I knew it was, that's, that's how people work. And for a lot of people, it was so shocking <laughs> to see yeah. the, their country and their friends yeah. and peers uh, divide into camps over something that seemed like it was just a matter of do you or do you not want to get this uh, this uh, illness, right? Uh, but it wasn't ever about that. It was, it was, it very quickly became a politicized issue. And the reason, and anything politicized is going to pull into the oldest parts of our psychology, which is social primate motivations to be a good member of your group or to signal to other people that you are a good member of your group. We're ultra social primates. We, I, we are very worried about our identity, which is what identifies us as being in one group or another. And the, at some point it became a demonstration of whether or not you were in one tribe or another to get the vaccine or not. And that we have plenty of literature describing how that happens and how to avoid allowing that to happen whenever we introduce something new into the world that requires uh, vetting and trust and, and authority and, and, and disambiguation and uncertainty and all these things. And there are good ways of doing that and bad ways of doing it. And uh, in some places they did it really poorly. And and the outcome, you have to have cognitive empathy for yes. people who, who became uh, uh, deeply opposed to these things. You have to have cognitive empathy for anybody on yeah. any side of any yeah. issue. What do we do to them? What do we do to them? Look, we've scared the shit out of them. We'd say we made, we made them, we made them, you know, we pushed them into those camps. I look, it's it, from, my, from the beginning has been, it's why we have doctors and it's why we close the door. And so we can sit there and reason with you and help give you the evidence and help make the decision with you alongside of you. So it's just you and me making this decision. What's best for you. That's it. And if you know that, that, that got left behind in this pandemic completely, which is really one of the great tragedies, in my opinion, that the physicians stopped doing their job, froze, got scared, were un unwilling to do anything that they normally do. Thankfully, that's been restored now. And, and guess what? You know, when I advise a patient to take a vaccine or a booster, I don't get any resistance because we sit and talk about it. We think about it. We make the best choice for that patient. I look. I take into their account of their point of view, their age. Let's talk about it. Yeah, we make a decision. That's it. That's how medicine is practiced. It didn't need to be more complicated than that. And even even the mask wearing. We, you know, do you want to protect yourself? Do well, then you better get the N95 mask because the other ones don't really work. So let's talk about what the risk to you you are if you don't protect yourself. Not that you're going to protect mm -hmm. anybody else. What does it mean for you? And what are we together going to make that decision on your behalf? So I, I don't know. It's just, it breaks my heart that we went through all this. I got to tell you. Yeah. And it'll, it'll happen again. This is our nature and uh, we should, I, I hope we learn, <laughs> hope we learn from it. <laughs> no, I, this is gross. Well, I hope Disgusting. we learn from it. Disgusting. I, really do. I feel you. I, I feel so you. Too. <laughs> the, Terrible. The, the, um, the, the, and you have to also understand, like, don't shame people for being hesitant to get vaccinated. There's a reason why. The, no, the never. I never do it. And, and the reason yeah. why they're I, 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 I look for solutions. I look for solutions. 
I look for solutions. I, my, my thing is like, what is it that bothers you? Well, what you really find out is that I don't like the, that it's a new platform and there's not enough study. I don't feel comfortable. I mean, you know how many times people have told me that about medication in my career? A thousand times, 10,000 times. And what I didn't shame them for that. I said, well, okay, we don't have, we, you're right. We don't have that big a track record. I feel it's safe, but okay. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, Novavax is a traditional platform that should do, do away with the vaccine hesitancy. And it's working. If the government would have gotten the Novavax out quicker, we would have gotten more people vaccinated because it's just a protein platform. And people who are really concerned about the new technology, no concern. So proceed. And they generally say they will. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself in like, like the way you're talking about it right now, like there's all this expertise you have, all this experience you have. Uh, for people who, like yourself, I can understand why you would trust it. For There are other people, though, in my life who, who were and myself included, we're ready to get vaccinated very quickly, but there's an introspection opportunity here. Ask Me yourself, too. why were you so quick to get vaccinated? Why did you not have that same hesitation? What is it? What? It, why do you trust these sources you know why? in a way that they do not? You know why? Because, because, because two, two reasons. I, first of all, I have an optimism bias. I'm very aware of it. Some people have a pessimism bias. My optimism bias causes me to take greater risk. And I, and I wanted to get through this. I didn't want to get COVID. So I was willing to take that. I understood the risk. There's real risk. It was not zero. It's anything. I, you know, I, I need a surgery soon. It's going to be real risky. I'm, I'm willing to take it. I'm clarity about it. But, but again, you know, I have the context. And so people don't have the context. That's why we're talking about monkeypox now. One case out of 80 million. You want, if you want to talk about all the illnesses of infectious diseases that are one per 80 million, I could give you 30. And why aren't we worrying about those? And why are we worrying about monkeypox? It's like the people don't have the context and the people that should be providing the context aren't, aren't providing it. They're just providing the, the, the fear and the anxiety because captures eyes and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's the, it's the yeah. system that you say it's going to take four generations to work through. I don't know if we have four well, generations, but uh, it's going to take a bit. <laughs> but go ahead. Uh, take a bit. I, I mean, I'm with you. I'm, we, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded. It's okay. I mean, in the book, I talk about it, there's a thing that happens here in social systems that's very similar to punctuated equilibrium in biology, where you have long periods of stasis and then it seems like overnight everybody changes their mind about something at, 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 at large scales. We saw this with same-sex marriage. We've seen it with smoking norms. We've seen it with uh, marijuana laws. We've seen it with uh, civil rights struggles. There's a there's many examples from uh, from American history in which there were long periods of what seemed like stagnation in the status quo, and then yes. within 12 years yeah. or so, things change rapidly. And there's a great science yeah. behind explaining how that takes place. It's um, and it and uh, it's all I talk all about this book. I don't know if we have time for it, but it's uh, thresholds of conformity is what it comes down to. Uh, each we the every node in the network of human interaction uh, is connected to other nodes, other people, and but each person has an individual threshold of conformity. That if you look at across the entire population, you can see that there are people who are um, slow to change, faster change, and so on. And you have these like uh, pools, these communities that will form in a moment of uncertainty, and uh, with vaccine hesitancy it's very similar there were people who were most hesitant least hesitant and there are many gradations along that um if you ever been to a party where uh it seems like you were everybody was having a good time and then everybody leaves in the course of like 15 minutes and you're like what happened uh that's an example of this uh, process taking place at a smaller scale like what usually happens is there are people who uh they're ready to leave uh and there are people who are not but everybody's paying attention to what each other person is doing and people who are kind of on the cusp of, I need a couple other people to go before I'm willing to go because I don't want to look like I'm one of those people. So the early adopters right. will, will leave right off the bat. I'm ready to go by. 
well, then that gives yeah. the next pool of people a chance to go, okay, then I'm going to go. And they, that, but those people now create a larger number of people who have left. So there are people who have a higher threshold of conformity that have met their threshold. Thanks to them. You get a cascade where everybody empties out. There's a way to apply that to something like this, where you direct your messaging to large groups of people to the least hesitant. And then that creates a larger pool of people who are, become examples for other people to follow. And that's one way that these things happen. Oftentimes it happens randomly and by chance and you get these massive changes in public opinion that it seems like no one was, was really directing. But you also can apply activism and all sorts of other uh, communication tools to try to uh, catalyze that if you to create it more readily. So I'm not, I, I know I said it was across many generations, but there are ways to like there are levers that we can use to uh, increase the rate of change in certain domains, and especially if you are very, yeah. you know, you have to determine what is harmful, what is important, what ought to be changed, and you can apply these techniques to those things. I, I think I'm going to have to back you into interpersonal neurobiology. I think I think that's the next logical <laughs> place for you to land. There's there's okay. a whole field out there that I'm going to bring you on into. Guys like Peter Fonagy and Alan Shore, S C H O R E, and Stephen Porges, P O R G E S. So it's a little it's a little off of where you are. Yeah, I, I, it's a little off, but but it is a it is a world that's trying to. I know you're interested in the brain part. Really look at how brains affect other brains. It really really I, nail it down. I'm so fascinated uh, with it right now. Yeah. So much. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's actress. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Now, it's it actually it's sort of a psychoanalytic field, but but it's but it is a neurobiology field really at its core. And uh, guys like Porges, well, you'll you'll probably light up with that stuff. I think that there that how we create these units of exchange. In other words, how do you know all these things you're talking about? How does that happen? What is it? How is it communicated? Uh, I know. Well, it turns out. Turns out there's a whole socio-emotional exchange system embedded in the vagus nerve and in the brachial pouches when we evolve that if reflect on our face, on our voice, in our ears, and how we attune to each other. There's a whole system there. And it goes back branchial pouches, branchial, branchial pouches. And it goes all the way back to how we how we get our needs met as babies when we don't have anything else at our disposal. You know, it's, it, there's a whole mechanism there that uh, operates early, but then, of course, you know, still have vestiges later that becomes the socio-emotional exchange system of, of uh, the, the social animal, the human being. And it, it's getting yeah. worked out. It, it, I tell you, the, there's the cognitive side, which you have a, you have a deep grasp of, but there's a, a socio-emotional, motivational side that is a little more squishy. <laughs> and, and it's, I like it's, the squishy. I think you'd like it's, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm super fascinated. Yeah, it's with sort it. of your. I, I talk in the you know I talk in the book. You probably read the part about the dress, and uh, that's that to me yeah. was like, oh wow, this is a Rosetta Stone for a lot of things that I've wanted to understand forever about how people work, and it, it there's neuroscience yeah. in it about why people saw that dress differently. But then there's the other side of it, which is why did we so vehemently argue about it in a way that um, broke the internet for a minute. And right. that right. that's the avenue that I'm very excited about right now is understanding what happens when yeah. we pool our well, ideas together. Yeah. And and also we we particularly I think it's I think there's a, a, a bit of an American phenomenon too. We we don't like we we because we're so pragmatic and because we're so interested in being free, 
and free will, we don't like the idea that our perceptions might be distorted or might be effective or not, might not be accurate. We really resist that very hard. Yeah. I mean, look, look at the world of just memory function. We know that memory is a highly distorted phenomenon and that it changes over time. That, that is a categorical fact. Not in this country. Everyone wants to believe their memories are just screen, screen, you know, just play the movie back, everybody. We know exactly what happened there. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. Some people do. Yeah. Mary Lou Henner does, and she has she has hyperthymesia. It's a problem. It's actually a disorder. But the average person, you know, never, you didn't know that she can play back any day of her life and uh, tell you what she had for lunch and what she ate and what she how she dressed and. I've actually I had an experience with her. I'd mentioned this yesterday, where um, hyperthymesia it's called, where she um, I saw her in 1979 on a, a, a late on a Tonight Show broadcast where David Letterman was sitting in for Johnny Carson, and she goes, "Oh yeah, I was wearing my white dress and my uh, I remember it vividly. I remember what Dave said to me, and I remember what I had for dinner that day, and what was in my dressing room. It's just a random day in 1979 where I happened wow. to see her on television. I brought it up. Yeah, it, it's really a wild thing to come in contact with. But most people have a you know they're varying degrees of how our memories function. But most of us are reconstructing things, and it's very accurate. There it is. Uh, Caleb put hyperthymesia condition leads people to be able to remember an abnormally large number of their life experiences in vivid detail. And uh, I, I had a bit of it when I was younger. I, I, I had a bit of it. I and one of my sons has it too because we. When we uh, talk about their childhood or what happened on certain days, we'll just go, hey, Jordan, play the tape back. And uh, his, his, interestingly, his tape will be exactly what my tape is oftentimes. So and if we sort of have a similar thing with it's gotten much weaker as I've gotten older, I must tell you. What's that, Susan? <laughs> and, and mom has a tendency to reconstruct. You have to be memories. careful what you say in front of him. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll remember it. <laughs> well, David, I, I actually, yeah. I could talk all day about this stuff. Uh, I want to bring you back Same. and do more. I want to keep promoting the book. I think I think this book is so important for people to read. I I, I, I can't say it strongly enough. I You need to be familiar with this material. You need to understand how your mind works and how it changes. How Minds Change, June 21st. Order it immediately. You can find out more about David at David McRaney, M-C, capital R-A-N-E-Y dot com. There is the book. Um, I, I'm very excited by it. I can't wait to get into the historical Thank sweet you. part as well. And uh, keep doing the good work. Anything coming up on your pod that you can kind of tease so we can tell people? What oh, yeah. Uh, I got an interview so with... I got an interview with the great Terry Crews uh, coming up. Uh, we spent a whole, lot, a, whole, a whole episode talking about what I'm going to start calling probiotic masculinity, which is the opposite of toxic masculinity. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm going to try to coin that term. It's not mine. Uh, uh, somebody else told me that, but I love that term. Uh, and yeah, I have a number of episodes coming up about uh, different organizations that are trying to create better context for us to uh, argue and deliberate or to take the places we're already doing it, like Twitter and Facebook and TikTok, and apply a lot of the science we already put down in the record to improve the dialogue there. I've got episodes about all that coming up soon. Great. It is You Are Not So Smart. Check it out wherever you watch the podcast. And David, thank you for joining us, and we will see you thank no you. doubt very soon. You bet. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Of course. My pleasure. And uh, everybody, we will be back again tomorrow. Uh, let's see. It's 3 o'clock tomorrow. It's tomorrow Thursday. That's right. 3 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, the guest is Robbie Ludwig. She was covering the uh, the Amber Heard trial. I want to pick her brain a little bit about what she thought she saw there. She is a psychologist. I've known her for many years. And uh, it should be an interesting conversation about memories and character pathology. This is sort of what we're going to get into here. And addiction. Of course, they were all three on 
wide display. Uh, and I and I keep saying that they may have done a public service by sort of exposing the public to what these phenomenon are. I hope you'll tune in and listen so we make sense of it for you so you can learn a little more deeply about what it was that was on display there. Susan, something to add? No. Nope. I see you leaning into your mic, so. No. Nope. Okay. Well, I we did want to. Tomorrow at three o'clock. Oh, oh Kayla, I, if you have a second, I wanted to show you something that literally just happened as a part of the conversation in the comments here. And it's an example of what we've okay. just been talking about. So I'll, I'm going to okay. show you on the screen. So someone posted this okay. in the comments right here. And they were talking about how unfair it is to put flat earth people along with big pharma because they said that they've seen all this basically like paying out billions to children of parents who took Advil or Tylenol, right? Wow. So then that, that just again, there's three very widely disconnected thoughts, but interesting. Okay. Right. So, okay, but look here. So then I replied and I asked it. I them, understand it. I asked her, do you have yeah. any documentation? Do you have anything like, I want to read about this. Can you show me? And I tried to yeah, follow sure. almost like what he had said. It's like, I'm wondering where I can read more. Yeah. Then yeah, the good. response, the follow-up was, I keep getting lawyer ads on Facebook, but I haven't seen anything else. Okay, so that's the okay. evidence. So maybe the, someone has right, they're so sharing maybe, this maybe, type of stuff. But the important thing, but the important thing is for Beckett to stand back and think, hmm, I wonder how 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 sure I am of this thing. That that's what I hope happens there. That's what I, I'm I hoping. Had another, I, had a, I, I hope. But does I, nobody listen, ask just, for evidence to, when you start to believe like these things that I mean that you're someone claiming that's like very strongly, and they're also trying to like. Get it, your yeah. character as if, oh, you're hosting this stuff and you're not facing the truth about what all these other companies are doing. And then they don't have a single thing to follow up. Not one answer for some the first person, me, who I, asked the I, question. I had a I had another person tweet me. So this is an episode of All Things You Believe In, Doctor Conspiracy, and I was like, Oh, I think you know, I love your dog. I started trying to make a rapport. Your dog is so cute. Uh, I think you got me wrong. You're believing social media, and then that person just went silent. So it you know it, it 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 we don't have a perfect way of dealing with this yet. Like you said at the end, David was saying we're trying to figure out ways to do this in the context of social media, so we, this exchange can be a little more productive, so people can move. I mean, what, you know, what do you care what Beckett believes? It's whatever. Right, exactly. But I feel bad it's, for people I, like that. I, I feel bad. I, I think it's a shame that he has to, or he or she has so to. So sort of, Facebook ads, those can be like. Lots anyone or, can make those. I mean, anyone can make a Facebook knows? ad. Yeah. It's who knows? who knows. And I couldn't find anything. And I just wanted yeah. any any article that I could read about this. I couldn't find anything. And the person who's proclaiming it yeah. also doesn't have anything except, oh, I saw some Facebook ads way, about it. Tylenol's How many other millions of kids, people are okay? out there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so is Advil. That's a that's so Advil, different. But, yeah. but drug companies... There's no way for drug company to kick back or to pay people for doing things. It just doesn't right. exist. It just right. there's no way to do it. But so just look at the evidence. And it, I'm not saying that they don't have other things that they're quite guilty of, uh, quite, in terms of their advertising. And I mean, it's good for your kids if you have a fever. But. Yeah, all kinds of things that they should be held accountable for, but not what you think, unfortunately. So just to get, get the facts right. And again, um, but getting the facts right is never enough, as we found out talking to Dave. We'll bring him back. We'll bring David back. We'll talk more about this. I do have to run. I'll see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Good booking, Drew. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. 
Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 